Amen. Well, good afternoon, Shoreline Church. I'm Joe Collins, and uh, our mission is to love God and to love others. And uh, I'm excited to be with you tonight. I uh, was go out of town last week up in the Bakersfield Church and had a great time up there and really encouraged to be with them and uh, have some time there. They're really good people. We have some dear friends up there, and they invited us up to to just kind of help out. They're not with a minister right now. They're looking for one, but so a number of us other ministers are kind of filling in from time to time, going up there, getting a chance to speak. I think they picked Gio to go up there coming up soon, I think, and uh, I was glad about that because they picked him for their outdoor service, which will be like 120 degrees, so I'm fired up about that. I don't have to do that service, uh, but uh, it was great being with them. So last time, we are in our series, Jesus Worth Following, and last time I, uh, I spoke, we talked about the old woman who gave the two, the two coins. You might remember Jesus has spent the whole day, it was a Tuesday in the temple, the last week of his life, arguing with the, disciple, with the, the religious leaders who were upset at what he was saying, what he was teaching, the fact that he cleared the temple, that he was calling for basically the end of the temple system and Judaism as they understood it. And they got into several arguments with him. And at the end, they had nothing more to say. He, he, they, were, they were afraid to argue with him because every time they tried, it went bad for them. And finally, Jesus turned around, went on the offense and said, well, I got a few things I want to talk to you about and really challenge them on the state of the nation of Israel, the spiritual state. These were the spiritual shepherds, the leaders. And he was aghast at the condition of Israel. And then he used the, the old woman as an example. When, when, a, when, a, when a community gets to this point, to where the, the weakest, poorest, the most vulnerable are being used and fleeced to the point to where they are drained of every bit of their money, even their last two coins, there's no judgment left. I mean, there's no, there's no repentance left. There's no, there's no changing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, turning around. It's just judgment. That's what we talked about last week. Well, today, I want to talk about being diligent, staying alert. So, uh, you know, Adam and Eve were married, and uh, one day, after who knows how long they were together, and, you know, nothing ever went wrong, and everything was perfect, and Adam came home one day, and he was late from work. It was unusual. It never happened before. And Eve was incredibly bothered. And she didn't know what to do. She got really insecure. Like, where was he? And who was he with? And you know how all those thoughts get went through her head. And Adam finally showed up a couple hours late. And he walked in. And immediately, Eve was right there. Where have you been? What have you been up to? What's been going on with you? And she was just just super insecure. And so Adam calmed her down and said, honey, look, don't worry about it. I, I understand. I've never been late before. I'm so sorry. I don't know what to, to tell you. I just honestly lost track of time. It, I don't know what to say. And so Eve resolved that, but she never quite felt good about it, and so it kind of bothered her through dinner, and then later that night, they went to bed, and then Adam woke up in the middle of the night, and Eve was poking him in the side again and again and again, and he jumped out of bed. He said, Eve, what are you doing? And she said, you know what I'm doing. Now stand still while I count your ribs. <laughs> you know, when it came to her marriage, Eve was very diligent. When it comes to faith, we need to be people who are diligent. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much for this wonderful fellowship here and these great friends. 
I pray that uh, your spirit really ministers to each and every one of us. Speak to us through your word today. Help us to be really challenged, to watch out for our faith, to be diligent, to protect it. It's in his name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 13. You know that the series is all about going through the book of Mark place by place, everywhere Jesus went, place by place. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As I said at the beginning, we're in the last days of Jesus' life. It's really the last week. He entered Jerusalem on a Sunday, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, to crowds of people, thousands, tens of thousands, praising God, cheering for Jesus, calling him the Messiah. The next day, he came back to the city, spent the night out in a little town called Bethany, where he liked to stay, came back in on a Monday, and he cleared the temple courts. He caused a major stir. He, he, he pushed out the mer- merchants, the money changers, the, the caravanners, and so on, and began calling down curses, basically, on the temple and on the temple system and on, by extension, the, the Jewish faith and their failure of fulfilling their, their primary objective. As you might imagine, that ticked a few people off, especially the authorities at the temple, the, the church leaders, the religious elite. So when he came back on Tuesday, they got into lots of arguments. Right away, they were there arguing. And as I said, that didn't go so well for them. And by the end of the day, they quit arguing. Well, we pick up the story here shortly after Jesus has talked about the old widow. He's officially done making any public statements about the state of Israel. He's done talking to their leaders. He's done everything he could. He's tried. He's even sang songs. He's tried to get them to repent, to hear what he has to say, and there's just no going back at this point. And so he leaves. He leaves the city late Tuesday with his disciples. We have a picture on the screen. That's an artist's rendition of what the temple might have looked like in Jesus' day. But to give you some perspective, this is a huge building. It could accommodate that, that outer courtyard, the big sort of white area you see around the middle. That, that could accommodate maybe up to a million people. The inside was where only uh, pedigreed Jewish women and men could get everyone else, the Gentiles. And we had that sermon before. We're all out there in the courtyard where the money changers and all that was. And, and, but that was their place of worship and that's what it was. And this, this structure was so important to the Jewish people. It was, it was everything to them. As Jesus is leaving, he's walking through this this area on his way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples, at least some of them, are like, man, this building's amazing. Look at it, Jesus. Isn't it incredible? Look at this monument to God. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on the top of the other. And then they leave. They walk out of the city. He's giving them a hint. He's he's giving them a a sort of a prophecy about the future of this structure and the religious system that it represented. And he's basically telling them that it's going to be completely destroyed. 
Jesus is not talking about a remodel. He's not even talking about a ground-up restoration. He's talking about a completely new model. A whole new idea. It's going to be similar. It's going to have uh, uh, some, some similarities to the old model, but it's going to be completely new. And this model is over. I want you to get into the mindset for a minute of the disciples and of, of a faithful Jewish person who's, who really likes what Jesus has to say, but how hard this must have been to comprehend. This structure represented their nation. It represented their people. It represented their God. It was a part of their history for over 1,500 years. It was first built back in the time shortly after of King David, his son Solomon, built it. And it was an amazing building. And it was holding worship services and Jews, Jewish men, believers from all over Palestine would come at least three times a year to worship at that temple. So you grew up for generations connected to this building. The presence of God existed in that tall structure there in the middle. They call it the Shechaniah. It was a cloud of smoke by day, a burning pillar of fire at night. If you were a Jew at that time, you would pray during your normal daily prayers facing the temple if you lived in Jerusalem. If you were outside of Jerusalem, you faced Jerusalem. If you had children, you'd bring them here and they would get christened. They'd get, they'd get blessed by the priest. If you, if you made a vow to God, you'd go here and make your vow. Or if you completed a vow, you'd go here, get your vow completed. When you came to offer sacrifices, you brought your animals and your sacrifices, and there you went. That was where everything happened. The building itself was amazing. It got destroyed only a few years after, after it was built, maybe a couple hundred years, by the Babylonians. But then about 70 years later, they rebuilt it. Not quite as nice, but they did a pretty good job. And for some 400 and something years, there were continuous worship services, no, continuous, nonstop in that structure all the way until just before the time of Jesus. It was partially attacked and destroyed to some degree just before Jesus' time, but the Jews quickly won it back over. And then King Herod, terrible guy, but he liked to build things turned it into one of the ancient wonders of the world. He made it into that. It was some 15 stories high. The foundation stones that that sat on, now, and those are actually the only thing that's left, is the foundation stones. Some of them weighed over a million pounds. It was made of marble and gold. And it sparkled on the horizon. Like a, like a, like in a beacon of light. This is your history. This is your national identity. This is your faith. And Jesus said, not one stone will be remaining on top of another. I think we can forgive the disciples and the people in Jesus' day for not totally understanding him when he said that. That was just a concept that was a bit big for them. <clears throat> so they exit the city, <clears throat> and in verse 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, 
asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled. So as I said, they leave, they go out. That actually, that door on the front, again, artist rendition, is probably the door they went out. They went down to the, to your left, down a ravine, back up the other side, and that was where the Garden of Gethsemane was. The Mount of Olives started there, and that's where Jesus was. And so this, if this rendition is accurate, this is probably the, G, the view Jesus had when he sat down on the opposite side of the hill with his disciples, and they came to him and they said, hey, you know that comment you made about not one stone being left on top of another? Can you flesh that out a little bit? Like, can you help us out with that? Can you give us a little explanation? Like, when's that going to happen? How's that going to, what are we, what, what are the signs? How do we know that something like that would happen? I mean, look at that thing. You see, they were, they were just at the beginning of trying to understand in its entirety, what Jesus was really about, what he was trying to do. I think for most people, initially, he was sort of a revival movement. And it was like, oh great, let's get back to our faith, let's get back to the basics, the fundamentals, and they were excited. But as Jesus went along, he started saying things that were a bit more extreme, a bit more intense than just, hey, we're going to start over. He started talking about total destruction and a complete new idea. And that was a hard pill for them to swallow. I mean, this thing been in their lives, in their history for 1,500 years. How do you, how do you imagine the United States not existing? How do you think about that? Like, it's so hard for us to comprehend where, it's always going to be here. What are you talking about? It's been here for generations and look how great it is. It's going to be here for many more. It's hard for us to get our minds around something of that magnitude. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read the entire chapter of Mark 13 uh, because it's incredibly important. But not only is it important, it's one lesson. It's one complete, they call it discourse, fancy word for message, message Jesus had. And to try to break it up would do it disjustice. And so we have to read it in its entirety to properly understand it. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal? It actually is a big deal. This chapter we're going to read is one of those hotly debated and misunderstood and argued over chapters in the Bible. What in the world was Jesus talking about in Mark chapter 13? It seems to be so over the top and so intense and so I think in order to do it justice, we've got to read it in its entirety. To give you a little more context, most scholars, when they examine chapter 13, you can, you can read books on this, they're going to say that Mark chapter 13 is a prophecy about the end of the world. That's a very common belief about Mark chapter 13. Other scholars say, well, it's not only about the end of the world, it's also about... Uh, the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple, which happened in the first century, but but a lot of it also relates to the end of the world, or it's also like a double prophecy. They like to say that, where you know you see this mountain, and then behind it there's another mountain, and you kind of see them both. And so this is a prophecy, sort of about two things simultaneously. Maybe that's true, but I'm not so sure. 
And I believe there's a danger in trying to interpret Mark 13 like that. One, the danger is when we start talking about the end of the world, what do we start doing? I'm asking. You don't think about now. You, you don't think about now? Right. You start thinking about the end of the world, not now. What else? Someone else bl- blurted something out. Oh, right here. Oh, that wasn't- no, go ahead. No, it's fine. Right here. You start, right, us versus them, you start building bomb shelters and, you know, amassing food in your basement, right? What else? You panic. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of weird things happen when we start trying to figure out the end of the world. How many times have we heard that the end of the world was supposed to happen already? It's like every generation thinks it's going to happen in their generation. And so they all panic, and then they're wrong, and then they got to rewrite the, you know, their, their idea. And then we start reading the paper, and we're like, oh, here it is, end of the world, war in Afghanistan, here it comes. You know, we start doing that stuff. And that's dangerous. Yeah. It can lead us to, t- to some really bad conclusions, some bad outcomes. But there's another problem with that theory, and that is it ignores the context. There's a very specific context. We just set it up for you. Jesus was just done announcing the end of the Jewish temple system and by extension, the Jewish covenant. He just said, it's over. It's done. I've tried everything I could do. It's now done. He even told a parable about an owner of a vineyard and he sent all his servants and they wouldn't pay their rent. And finally he sent his son and they killed his son. And, you know, and then he said, and the, and God, and the father's going to come and kill you. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't be more clear that this is over. Something completely new is happening here. And so as he was leaving for the last time, under his own power, under his own volition, he said, this thing's done. It's, gonna, it's not even going to be existing in a few years. And that got the disciples going, what is he talking about? That's kind of hard to believe. And so they ask him the question, help us understand that. That is the context of Mark 13. Any potential connection to what what may happen in the end times, in the last days, is purely, in my opinion, coincidental. I'm not saying it couldn't be, but it would be coincidental. It's not the point of Mark 13. So the point of Mark 13 is Jesus is announcing the end of the temple system and the Jewish, really, religion for that matter. You say, well, why, why spend so much time on it? Because that's a big deal. It is the biggest event in God and man relationships since Moses was given the law at Mount Sinai that started this whole thing. There was a beginning, and now we're at the end. And Jesus, you could even almost look at it as an ode. That's a very uh, fancy word for an obituary that poets write for famous people. It's almost like an ode to the end of that covenant and the beginning of a new one. The thing I want you to hold on to as we go through chapter 13 is, is that context matters. The context of anything you read in the Bible is very important. And when you fail to understand the context, you often fail to properly understand the passage. And that's kind of the sub point I want to make right off the start here. But let's jump into Mark 13. This is not light. 
This is not uh, seeker-friendly messaging. This is deep, rich, intense Bible study of God's Word. So let's buckle in and let's listen to the words of Jesus spoken some 2,000 years ago as he sat on the side of the, the, the Mount of Olives looking down at the temple just days before he was going to be crucified. Chapter Verse 5. <clears throat> they said to him, watch out that no one deceives you. Or he said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquake in various places, famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard or you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever's given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother, father his child, children will bear against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now I know what you're thinking. Wars and rumors of wars. Parents Children at odds, people rising up, families being broken up. This has got to be the end of the world, right? I mean, that's what this is. No. He even says here, this isn't the end. What he's talking about is a time period between that moment right there when he was with his disciples and the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. And in that time frame, there's going to be famines, wars, troubles, persecutions. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's going to go down and you're going to think it's the end of the world. And it's not. It's just what happens to Christians. Yeah. This is a message to us too. That the normal Christian life is going to involve difficulty. It's going to involve hardship. It's going to involve fear and, and frightening events and scary things are going to happen. They happen to them and they're going to happen to you and I. They're going to happen in our lifetimes. This is just business as usual for the world and for followers of Jesus who are trying to live in that world. And he says, but don't worry about it. You're going to be flogged, Dan, but don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks, right? I mean, it's kind of, kind of insane on one hand, right? You kind of go, this is crazy. But he's literally telling them, and by us, by extension, hey, bad things are going to happen. You're going to have to endure some hardships. It ain't going to be easy. Don't worry about it. Because at the right time, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the help you need. It's going to be there when you need it. Don't even worry about what you got to say. Just wait till it happens and the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. In other words, Jesus is telling them, don't focus on what's going on around you. Don't focus on the world and what's happening all around you. Instead, pay attention to what you're doing in the world. What are you going about? How are you behaving? How are you handling what's happening? 
I don't know about you. I don't watch much news anymore. I don't need to. Because honestly, it's the same news today that it was 10 years ago. I figured that out. It doesn't matter. They're just trying to tell you to be afraid of everything. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. You can go to one side and they'll tell you to be afraid of A, B, and C. And you go to the other side and they're going to tell you to be afraid of D, E, and F. It doesn't matter. The question is, how do you behave? How do you handle yourself? The world is going to do what the world does. And it isn't always pretty. But what do you do? How do you behave? What is your legacy or road you, you walk in this world? So let's not focus on them because we have the Holy Spirit. And maybe we should try focusing on the Holy Spirit a little bit more than we do the news or MTV or SNL or I don't know what people watch today. Pokemon? What's on? What's big today? I don't know. Netflix. YouTube. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's going to tell us how we need to move forward. The Holy Spirit's going to fill the gap when the gaps are there. In other words, to put it mildly, Jesus called them and us to live consistently faithful lives. That's what it's all about. Consistently faithful lives. Not chaotic, not up and down, not in every valley and hill that comes along. Be consistent. Be faithful. We know this stuff's going to happen. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation. Okay, Joe, that's it. That's the end of the world. That's what that is. We'll talk about it. Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or into the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those uh, who will be because those who will, because those days of distress will be unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive for the sake, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. There it is. It's the end of the world. It's got to be false messiahs, the abomination that causes desolation. I mean, come on. This Nostradamus would say this is the end of the world. All the books, this is it. No. The context. He's still answering the questions. The first question is when, and he says, well, don't think, don't think you can find the time. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars. You won't know exactly when. And and the other question was, how do we know this is going to really happen? I mean, how can we trust you, Jesus? And he gives one really important clue. He says this phrase, the abomination of desolation. When you see that, number two things are going to happen. You're going to know the end is near, the end of the temple, not the world. And two, you're going to know I'm telling you the truth. Because <laughs> you may have a hard time believing this right now. But trust me. It's going to happen. So this phrase, 
The abomination that causes desolation. Where does it come from? Does anybody want to take a guess? And it's okay, this is a hard question. Where does it come from? It comes from the book of Daniel. Famous Jewish book. Loved figure in Jewish history. People in Jesus' day knew the book of Daniel well. And in the book of Daniel, there was a prophecy. Daniel lived at least 500 years before Jesus. And he prophesied the future for about four or five hundred years, from the time of Daniel to just before the time of Jesus. He said that these four different nations would come on the scene, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. He described them. He even described what they would be like. And he said in the time of the Roman era, something dramatic would happen at the temple, something really bad. And it would be a desolation. It would desecrate the temple. It would be um, unholy. It would cause the temple to be unclean. And we know from history that about 186, I want to say, 167 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe he was a Syrian, can't remember exactly, he tried to de destroy the Jewish people and he invaded the city of Jerusalem and he took the temple. And you know what he did in the temple on purpose? He went inside the temple, the, the most holy place in all of Israel, and he sacrificed a pig and then he worshipped idols inside the temple. The most disgusting thing you could think of to a Jewish person. Jews got so mad, they fought back, they eventually pushed him back out, recaptured the temple, cleansed it, and continued the worshiping and the services there up until the time of Jesus. But he called that guy the abomination that causes desolation. How would you like that to be your nickname in the Bible? <laughs> That's what that guy's known for. Not a real winner. So now Jesus says something like that is going to happen again. But he's not saying it's going to happen at the end of the world. If it does, it's totally coincidental. He's saying it's going to happen in their lifetime. And it's going to be in relationship to the temple again. And that was to be a very important sign. When you see something like that happen again, he tells them to run for the hills. Because it's going to get ugly in a big hurry. That's what he says. That's your sign. That's how you know this is true. And that is the beginning of the end for the temple system, Judaism as they knew it. Now you say, but look at this language. I mean, he uses some pretty intense language. And I would say, yeah, when you're talking about something dramatic, you use big words. You use fancy language. It's just what we do. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's using these big words, this intense language, because he's trying to help them understand the intensity and how intense this is going to be. And he's connecting to how they feel about it, how they're going to feel about it. Well, history tells us something. We know in 70 AD, a Roman general entered the city of Jerusalem. The Romans had gotten so tired of the Jews fighting and constantly causing rebellions that they just said, we're done with you guys. They marched on Jerusalem. They sieged the city for about four years. They eventually broke through the walls. They went in. They completely looted the city, destroyed the temple. And guess what they did in the temple? 
They worshiped a pig on the altar. They set up Roman gods, idols inside there, and they turned it into a pagan house of worship. Almost a carbon copy of what Antichius Epiphanes did about 150, 160 years before, and exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said, that's the end. Mark chapter 13 is all about that moment, that time. That's the context. He's answering their questions. What's amazing is during the occupation and during the looting, the temple got lit on fire. The fire broke out. And guess what it did? It melted all the gold. And guess what, where the gold went? It leaked into the rocks, and the Roman soldiers looted the place so, so significantly that they were breaking up the rocks to get the gold out, and now there's no rock standing on another rock in the temple. It's just a flat piece of earth to this day. Never to be rebuilt, never to be restored, although many people try, and there's many people throughout the centuries that have wanted to, to restore the temple in Israel, and they believe that somehow they're fulfilling some prophecy. Here, I'm here to tell you, it's not in Mark 13. And if they do rebuild it, it wouldn't matter because God is not there. Because that system is over. It's done. That covenant has ended. It has been terminated. And we're now in a new covenant. And so we don't need to go to the temple. We don't need to worship there. We are temples. God lives in us with his Holy Spirit and guides us and leads us and directs us. So there is no need for that. And that's what the chap what Mark chapter 13 is all about. And again, you say, but look at the language. Abomination that causes desolation and so on. And I'm going to say again, well, what did the news say when North Korea and South Korea had a meeting? They went, it's earth shattering. It's unprecedented in human history. They said things like the planets are aligning. The orbit of the earth is going backwards. Did any of that actually happen? No, the earth didn't shatter. The world didn't spin backwards. None of that actually happened. It's called hyperbole. Right? It's what our wives do to us to encourage us when as husbands. You're amazing and awesome and man, you walk on water. No, we don't and we don't do that. It's hyperbole. And Jesus was using the language because it was so unfathomable for a Jewish person to think that that temple could be destroyed in just their lifetime. It was unconscionable. And yet he was preparing them for that eventuality. He was trying to get them ready because it was going to rock their world. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves. And Jesus is just getting them ready. And he says, so be on guard. I have told you ahead of time. I've warned you. I've prepared you for this. You know, we are going to face difficult times. And we're going to need to be on guard. We're not worried about the fall of the temple. That's happened. But there's going to be other tragedies. There's going to be other disasters. There's going to be other problems. And we've got to be on guard. We've got to be prepared. We cannot go into this thinking that the world's just going to all line up and everything's going to be fine and we're never going to have any problems. Who here doesn't have a problem? Okay, so we have problems, and the world has problems, and we got to be prepared for problems. 
You know, a really sad story about the fall of the temple. Inside the city of Jerusalem, they were, they were getting so fanatical because they were being sieged for four years that they started thinking, this guy's a Messiah, that guy's a Messiah, and different Messiahs popped up. I'm going to lead you to whatever. And they would go try to do something crazy like stand on the wall and yell at the Romans and a Roman would hit him with an arrow and he dropped dead. And well, that's not the Messiah. We got to find another one. You know, like that kind of weird stuff. I made that up, but stuff like that was going on. It got to the point where they started fighting with each other. The Jewish defenders of the city of Jerusalem started attacking each other inside the city because they started arguing over the best way to you know, deal with the Romans who were outside the gate. I don't know what it is, but it's a, it is a tragedy. It is sad. But there's something about difficult times that causes us to attack. And sometimes we attack each other. We start to, we start to go after our own unity gets, gets, gets attacked. I mean, I'm hurting and it's gotta be that guy's fault. That guy's a jerk. I can't believe that guy. And we start turning on each other. Oftentimes the unity is the first thing to go. We need to be on guard and protect our unity. We got to stop tearing each other down. Start building each other up. And maybe we got to start correcting people who we hear tearing other people down. It's not okay. We are in a bigger battle. There is a bigger danger that exists outside of our petty disagreements, outside of, I think you should do it this way, I do it this way, and I'm not going to hang out with you because you do it that way. That is ridiculous. We are dealing with a bigger enemy and a bigger threat and a much more dangerous a world. We've got to be on guard and we've got to protect our unity. Stop tearing each other down. Let's start building each other up. And let's start correcting those who are tearing down. Verse 24. We're almost done. But in those days, following the distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power, and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right, now he's talking about the end of the world. This has got to be the end of the world. I mean, Jesus is returning, the angels are coming, they're gathering the elect, and almost every scholar you read will tell you, okay, now he finally made the leap. He's been talking about the temple this whole time, but now he's talking about the end of the world. But I find that odd, that in context when he just got done talking to them about all this tragedy that was going to happen in their life, in their world, at their time, that he would suddenly leap to two, three, maybe four thousands in the years in the future to talk about the end of the world. It doesn't seem to fit the context. So what is happening here? Again, it's called hyperbole. The stars are going to fall from the sky. He's not being literal. What he's trying to help them understand is this is going to feel like the end of the world to you. Losing the temple is going to feel like 
the worst thing that could ever possibly imaginable happen. It's got to be the end of the world. That's what it's going to feel like. He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the temple. And he says that he's going to come back, coming in the clouds with great glory, and he's going to have angels, and he's going to gather his elect. And we kind of look at that, and we go, well, that's got to be it. That's final judgment. He gets everybody together. No, I believe there's a, a different meaning that Jesus had in mind because of the context. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. This is harder than the Daniel one. What do you think he meant when he said, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven, and I'm going to bring my angels, and I'm going to gather the elect? What do you think he was talking about? What did that mean to them? It's okay. Even if you take a crazy guess, it's okay. It's a really hard one. This took a lot of study. This took a lot of digging to understand. Nobody wants to guess. No one wants to feel bad. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I can't hear you. Does it have to do with salvation? No, actually, that's a good answer. Yes. Anyone else want to take a guess? So this phrase, the son of man, it comes from Daniel also. The same guy who came up with the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. He also used this phrase, the son of man. So Jesus is quoting Daniel again. And I want you to read the passage that Jesus quotes. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Interesting language. It sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Mark, in, in Mark chapter 13. This is a quote. Jesus is basically ref referencing this passage. And in this passage, we see that Daniel had a vision of someone like the Son of Man who went into heaven, who was basically God, right? He was a son of man, but he had the glory, power, and authority of God. And he was going to rule for eternity up there. And he was going to gather his kingdom, his people. Very similar to what Jesus said. I would argue that Jesus was almost quoting this. He was, he was clearly referencing this passage of Scripture when he told the disciples that about the time the temple falls, you're going to see the Son of Man come, he's going to have his angels, and he's going to gather people from all over the world. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to read another passage. And if you have your phone or your Bible, this is the one time I want you to really pay attention to this. So go to Acts chapter 28. And I'm going to ask for a volunteer because I don't even have it in my notes here. To stand up and read Acts, I'm sorry, Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So let me get a volunteer. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. Thanks. Thanks. Go ahead. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't know if you catch this right away, but there's a parallel here. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. That's the same thing Daniel said about the Son of Man. That's the same thing he said about himself in Mark chapter 13. All authority has been given to me. In other words, I'm God. And then in all three of those passages, there was some comment made about angels, well, in the first two, about angels going out and gathering the elect. But in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go into all nations, make disciples. Sort of a similar reference. He doesn't use the word angels. But here's an interesting thing. The word angels doesn't always have to mean angels like floating around in the sky. It means messenger. And so sometimes people are called angels in the Bible, regular people, because they're messengers. They come with good news. So in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I'm God. Now I'm sending you, my angels, out into the world to gather believers. Remarkably similar to Daniel's prophecy and to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13. So putting this together, what is happening here? This is what I believe is happening. Jesus gets done explaining all the stuff that's going to happen between that moment that they're sitting outside the temple and they're looking at it and to the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's a period of about 40 years. And he's saying, during that time, all kinds of craziness is going to happen. You're going to think it's the end of the world, but it's not. And then the temple's going to get totally destroyed. The Romans are going to desecrate it. And that's when you know to run, because if you're around that area, they're going to kill you too. And he goes, and when that's all over, I'm still God. And guess what? You have a job to do. Your job is to go out and make disciples. You're the angels that he's commissioned to go out into the world and to gather the elect, to find the other believers that are scattered all over the world. You see, the end of the temple was not the end of the world. It was the beginning of a new covenant. And we, as followers of Jesus Christ, just like the disciples in his day, are called to be angels of that covenant. We're the messengers. And it is our job to go out and to bring new people in. Mission love. Every one of us is on a mission for Christ. There's no temple. There's nothing we got to worry about. We're not trying to drag people over there, but we have a mission. We're not trying to bring people to the temple. We're trying to bring the church to the people. And you have a certain group of people that are unique to you. I can't interact with them. I don't even know them. And if I try to interact with them, if I go up with you to meet your friend and I try to be cool, I'm going to look like a nerd because they know you, not me. And so you have a group of people that are on purpose put in your life by God for the expressed purpose of gathering them to him. And only you can do that job. I can only do my job with my world and only you can do the job with your world. And so when all was said and done, the temple was going to be destroyed. The whole system was going to come crashing down. There was one thing, two things that are going to remain. Jesus is God, and we have a mission. And our mission is to make disciples, to gather the elect, to love people into the kingdom of God. 
have you been doing? Do you have a list of people? Have you put their names down? Are you praying for them every day? Have you been trying to invest? Have you spent any time with them? I mean, that's just the start. If you don't have a list, then you're not really identifying who's in your world. And you're failing at the very first step. You're not even getting started on mission love. Make a list. Who are the people God has put in your life? And then begin praying for them. Begin investing in them. Begin ministering to them so that when the time is right, you can invite them. And you can introduce them to Jesus Christ. You're the bridge. You're the gap. You're the angel. You're the messenger. Jesus ends. He says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening... You know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. He's clearly talking about then, not now. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. About that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. Do not, you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge. Each will be assigned their task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Jesus wraps up by saying, look, nobody's going to know the exact time or when this is all going to happen, but you can trust me. As sure as a fig tree blooms in season, this is going to happen. So you got to be watching. You got to be diligent. Like Eve was diligent for her marriage. I'm going to end with a little bumper sticker that I saw. And I love it. And it's humorous, but it sort of makes the point. It said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. You know, Jesus is coming. And we better be busy doing the job he has given us to do. And only you can do it. So be on guard. Be alert. We are on a mission. We're going to close out in prayer. Let's stand on up. Let's go arm in arm.